0: My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. Hello and welcome, What the Finances, to another episode of the What the Finance Podcast, where we talk to experts to help gain a greater understanding about what is happening in the world of finance, investing, and markets. Uh, and on today's podcast, I'm happy to welcome Gwen Preston, uh, who's the founder of Research Maven and expert in the resource market. So, Gwen, thanks for joining the podcast today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: No problem. And I guess for anyone who hasn't been paying attention to the resources markets, which, you know, I don't know where they've been, that maybe they've been hiding under a rock or something. But I guess, can you explain to people what's been happening maybe in the last 6 to 12 months?
1: I mean, it's been a roller coaster, really. Um, Looking back 12 months, I mean, commodity prices were starting to really rocket. I mean, copper prices were at all-time highs. You know, zinc was rising. We went through this crazy nickel market fiasco but that sent nickel prices through the roof um and those were all real pressures those were all real pressures stemming from supply demand insufficiencies not some of them immediate like some of them like in the moment more of them being like a little looking a little bit longer term but um a lot of metals markets even the really big ones are quite immediate they really respond to what's happening like, like over the next three months and so there was some some shortages there and this is all, you know, COVID recovery and Chinese stimulus and all of these things needing metals. Um, and then you pile inflation on top of that. Right. And a strong dollar. And it just like the the whole combination sent prices really through the roof. And um, and so that lasted until the tightening train entered the station. Right. And so then we get into, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine that coincided with sort of the reality of tightening coming home to roost for um, a lot of market participants, especially in North America, but also in Europe. And and that reality just turned everything around, right? Because tightening, rate hikes, and, you know, reduction of, of government support, monetary support, that's all about trying to slow the economy down, because that's one of the main reasons that we have all this inflation. Now, inflation right now is, is a whole other conversation there's lots of reasons that we have rampant inflation right now but a strong economy is certainly the thing trying to pull inflation back in so they raise rates they try and slow growth and nobody bets on growth when the central bank is trying to slow growth and buying metals is all about betting on growth right that's why you buy copper that's why you buy iron ore whatever it might be And so those prices really turned around. Um, And uh, I should say, and a strong dollar really played into that because the U.S. was, of course, the first central bank to really start tightening. And they moved rates, remember, from zero to 2.25 in the space of four months. That is a dramatic move. Stand out across the globe and currencies are all relative. So the U.S. dollar gained in a dramatic fashion because metals are priced in dollars that pushed back against um, metals just as that uh uh-oh what's going on with growth situation was also playing out and that pulled a bunch of metals just right back down to earth so that's sort of where we are now right we're still in the middle of this tightening cycle there's still more rate hikes to come to be sure Um, and so there's still a lot of unknowns out there about what the tightening will do, what will really happen to growth, how this will play out, you know, North America globally. Um, So there's still a lot of unknowns out there. Um, At the same time, there isn't enough of most of these metals. If we look a few years out, the greenification of the world is a paradigm shift in demand for copper, even, which is like one of the biggest and most important metal markets in the world. It's a paradigm shift for copper. Um, And I can talk more about why copper has ended up in this sort of supply deficit that we are really facing in a few years. But that similar story plays out across a bunch of green metals, if you want to call them that. So right now we're in a bit of a transition point where people aren't interested. People still aren't interested in growth because we're still talking about central banks tightening us into a recession. And like I said, nobody buys growth when we're being tightened into a recession. But in a slightly longer time frame the store the metal stories all make a lot of sense so we're in a bit of a, a a waiting game a holding pattern for the moment for those metals um so that's that's what's been going on there now i haven't touched on gold we we, we get to gold as a second topic if you'd like <laughs>
0: Yeah, sorry. That was a bit of a loaded question, you know, because the commodity <laughs> markets, they're so large, aren't they? So, it's, you did very well, you know, trying to explain what's been happening uh, with, with all the markets. And I guess do you think what's happened is maybe people were looking too far ahead. You mentioned that, you know, maybe people were looking at that green economy, the green evolution, and they sort of got, they forgot that growth really is king in commodities.
1: I mean, it's such an interesting, you actually touched on a really interesting question there. And it's one that I've been grappling with quite a bit recently, because when I look at copper, copper is my, my key um, example here. Copper is a massive market. It's 25 million tons a year. It's the PhD of metals. Um, and it is the most important metal if we want to electrify the world, right? We can't, it's it's one thing to create green energy, but if we can't move it and we can't store it, then it doesn't matter so it is absolutely essential and in 2 years 3 years we, the world does not produce enough copper to meet demand so that that's like a so that to me says that like copper should be doing well right now like this is that's how i want it to work because i spend a lot of time looking at these things and i think fundamental supply demand imbalances should be addressed but that actually just isn't how the copper market works the copper market works Like I say, in sort of like a three-month window, when a major mine in Chile experiences a labor strife, the copper price responds because a lot of copper is transacted in a fairly short time frame. It's not something that users have to buy a long time ahead or anything like that. So it is really a very in-the-moment market, which is frustrating for someone who wants to be able to position for what I see as an incredible opportunity that's just a little ways out but it nonetheless is the reality. And yes, that means that current questions about growth are what matter for copper right now. Do I think that that's going to make the bull market for copper when it happens more dramatic? Yeah, I do. Because we could be gradually stepping our way up to a new copper price that incentivizes the new mines that we need. And instead we're like, sliding the copper price and we still need to get up to that incentive price so i think the market when we get there will be more dramatic for this but at the end of the day the moment the in the moment copper market like you say focuses on growth and growth is not we're all talking about recession right now we're not talking about growth
0: yeah and i guess could you say maybe that's because really the major demand for copper over the last 20 years has been china especially their real estate markets. And that's really where we've seen lots of, you know, I think it's gone down 40% ridiculous amounts. It's really slowed down. So do you think maybe that's what's happened and we might see a shift away from the lead demand for copper being Chinese real estate and China in general to this green evolution? Do you think that's what maybe we're seeing next few years?
1: Absolutely. And I mean, I think, uh, yes. So I think another cool or interesting aspect of that story it, like it, it, that brings us to a bit of a historical look. So, like the China growth story of the early 2000s was phenomenal, right? And that was the last major copper bull market. That's because, that, like you say, that is that has been the most important copper driver for the last 15 years. What I think is really interesting looking back, and maybe it's just because I'm sort of obsessed with copper, is that when the copper growth story really became apparent, 2004, five, six, supply copper miners um, responded like in lockstep. They're like, okay, okay, we see it. Demand is going up. Let's build new mines. But back then you could actually build a new mine in a reasonably short time frame. You There was capital markets interest, so you could get the money. And the permitting timelines were just a lot shorter. So if you had a an advanced copper mine, you know, where the the mine planning was done, the engineering was done, and you needed a permit, you could probably get a permit in two years, maybe three years, depending on lots of details. Today, that is simply not the case. Today, we have incredibly conservative management teams at mining companies because they've gone through a bunch of tough years. So they have, they're very conservative about capital You have a a capital market that isn't interested because to be blunt, investors have been interested in highly speculative like monkey NFTs and cannabis and all kinds of other things for a long time. And now they're shrinking back because we're in this recession moment instead. So the capital market support isn't there. And the permitting timelines have drawn out dramatically. So instead of getting a permit in two years, you might literally need 10 to 12 years to get a permit for a mine. So there's also an inability for the supply to respond to the rising need, which again, I think is only going to make this market more dramatic when it happens. So yeah, I'm I'm obviously very bullish on this market, but yes, I agree that we need to get through the current moment, all this tightening and recession and what does it all mean? Get inflation down, however that happens and then i think the opportunity will be quite dramatic and yes it'll be a little bit different than it was um, but it's it's very real
0: so yeah so once you once we hit that realization do you think maybe we'll see what's happening in the us at the moment i guess with semiconductors there'll be mass, this massive drive and you know all the resources going behind these companies to actually try and get these materials? Do you think that will, is what will happen? Yeah, what and I
1: happen? think we're starting to see that in some poc- some resource areas already. I mean, you look at uranium, and you can see a similar sort of story playing out there. Obviously, uranium is a much smaller market. It's got its own set of politics and social considerations for sure. But nonetheless, very similar concept where there isn't enough uranium. It's totally essential for the Green Revolution. Re- recent events have amplified sort of push the issue forward of course for um for uranium that's mostly russia and you know questions about supply from kazakhstan and questions about the role that uh, whether we can continue to use russian facilities to upgrade our uranium which is what you need to do to turn it into nuclear fuel these are all factors but at the end of the day very slow moving (laughs) plans for government support for nuclear have suddenly sped up. And all of a sudden now the U.S. is asking for proposals to buy uranium, which is something that they've said they were going to do for a long time. So, yes, I do think that when the rubber finally meets the road on copper, on uranium, on these essential green metals, that, yeah, it will require and involve like support and and drive across the spectrum from from politics from the investment community it'll and from you know those who are in the space as well the producers and whatnot they will all have to come together and you know whether it's doing things to do with speeding up permitting or governments buying uranium or or doing things that support the development of mines or whatever it is it's going to have to happen because that's just the, the that's how deep the crux is that we're in for these metals.
0: Yeah, and I guess the countries where you know where where these materials are, are going to really benefit from that. I guess you could say Australia. I think Mongolia has a massive mine. You know, you mentioned Chile, Peru, all these countries. They're going to do Canada. can do very well off it.
1: Yeah, and you, especially those that actually lean in and and help it, who decide that what they want to do is lean in and help the development of mines. Of course, that's that's a loaded question, right? That there are pros and cons to developing mines. I'm not, I'm not just blatantly pro development for mines. I get that. Um, but yes, there's a massive opportunity there for governments that decide to be proactive on it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I guess, uh, what are the other commodities that you think that you're sort of watching and that you think maybe are underrated to investors in general?
1: <laughs> so, um, Obviously I love copper. I really love uranium. Those are the two um, over the medium term. Those are the two that probably stand out the most. Silver is also a very interesting asset right now. So silver, especially in times of like in economic tumult, like right now, it often responds more as a precious metal. So it mirrors gold, and when people are buying or selling gold because they're confident or worried about the, the economy and inflation and all of these things, that's, you know, it's, it's other whole ball of wax. Silver mirrors those moves. But silver is mostly actually an industrial metal, right? And, of course, it is really essential in solar panels. And there's a pretty interesting... um math out there where, you know, the Atomic Energy Association, if we're going to hit some of the goals that we have for green energy, we're going to need 10 times as much solar over the next, I can't remember, seven years or something. Um, And that would currently silver or solar panels require about 10% of the world's silver. So if we were to do that, then all of a sudden, solar panels alone would take up 100% of the world's silver output. And on top of that, China is absolutely the leader in solar panel technology and they have been significantly increasing the amount of silver that goes into each solar panel and it's working well. It's obviously worth it on an efficiency basis, a power production efficiency basis. So the math that silver, all the silver is going to need to go into solar panels over the next seven years doesn't even take into account that they're actually increasing the load of silver in each panel. So. The silver demand setup is also very robust. Uh, Again, it has to get through this moment, especially because it does act as a precious metal, as a safe haven thing um, in these tumultuous times. Um, But when we come out the other side, I think there's real opportunity in silver for sure. So those are probably the three that lead my pack. Copper, uranium, and silver. Nickel is also a really interesting one. It's just hard to invest in nickel because it's often with major miners who produce all kinds of different things. So it's hard to get like very clear exposure to nickel. Um, And then gold, we haven't talked about gold. Gold is probably the hardest one to predict out of all of them. Um, I I think there's opportunity there. It's harder to be a hundred percent confident in that opportunity because it's not an industrial supply demand equation like it is with the other metals that I just laid out. Um, it's a safe haven, inflation, economic confidence. What are investors going to be interested out interested in out the other side of this moment? And I think that, that to me is the biggest question. What are investors going to be interested in when we get to the other side of this tightening cycle? Are they going to go back to Fairly speculative investing, which is what we certainly were into in the post-COVID run because the Fed stepped in and literally just backstopped everything. They backstopped risk and people were like, let's buy everything, everything works. And so speculative investing was the thing. Or will more caution return to the markets? Will the Fed remain more stringent in its support or like not supportive and therefore force investors back into a, more normal, more conservative investing approach. And if that's the case, then gold steps forward in its role. And and gold's role has always been a safe haven and on the stock side as an opportunity that provides outsized returns when the moment is right. Now, gold used to be somewhat unique in that, right? When gold was going, gold miners could shoot through the roof and there weren't a ton of arenas out there that offered that kind of reliable outsized performance when you captured the moment. But in the last while, we've actually had a lot of arenas offering that. Like if you jumped onto cannabis, it worked when the moment was right. If you jumped into crypto, it worked when the moment was right. NFTs worked when the moment, right? And so gold's Gold got a bit diluted in that it 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 lost its unique status as offering that, and so that's why I think there's been gold. The price has done pretty darn well. It's been fine. I mean, eighteen hundred dollar gold is fantastic, but there's not a lot of interest in gold stocks, um, and I think it's because that interest has been diluted. It's been there's been too many other opportunities to make good money, and so I really think it's when we come out the other side of this tightening cycle. This recession, this inflation, all of this mess that we're in right now. What does that, what do investors want and what do they expect and what are they buying on the other side? I think that's really going to determine the opportunity for gold. And I just don't know the answer to that one yet.
0: Yeah, I guess it depends if they pivot now or if they keep tightening a little bit more and people feel more pain. I guess that's really, it's going to be interesting to see. It's very psychological.
1: I mean, I don't think that there's a pivot coming particularly soon. I mean, I think they're certainly going to do another big raise, at least 50, if not 75 in September, because sure, 8.5 inflation is better than 9.1, but 8.5% inflation is still completely unacceptable when your mandate (laughs) is to control inflation and to keep unemployment in a good level, but unemployment's doing fine. So that gives them all the leeway in the world to focus on inflation, which is way too high and there's a bunch of sticky components of inflation that are still rising like the number came down in in yesterday's july cpi report um and it came down a little bit more than expected but a bunch of those were to use an overused word some of those transitory things right like used cars and rental cars had shot through the roof now they're back down that's great and helpful but you know, like rents are going up and like a lot of the stickier prices remain rising. And so that is only going to encourage the Fed to continue tightening. So I do, I don't think that we're going to get a pivot, certainly not in September, Will we get a pivot before the end of the year. I will have to see how the inflation numbers perform. Um, But there's, yeah, there's a lot of money sloshing around out there. I mean, the fact that we had As dramatic a summer rally in the overall stock markets as we've had shows me that there's still a a fair amount of money and speculative interest. I mean, I don't know if excess is probably too big a word, but, you know, tightening hasn't really hit home if AMC Holdings, a bankrupt movie company that's done all kinds of incredibly questionable things over the last year, can gain 40% in a day last week, right? Like there's still a lot of excess froth in the market or or desire for that. I'm not sure exactly what it is. And that's only going to encourage the Fed to continue tightening. So I don't think we're going to get a pivot particularly soon. And I actually think that there's too much optimism on a pivot. I think that there's more downside for the stock market ahead because the Fed is like 8.5 is a long way from three and that's where they need to get to. So I, there's my there's my like dower there's my damper on the conversation.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I, I should sort of have the same opinion. I've, I was listening to someone. They said even if we hit zero percent for the rest of the year, we'd still have over six percent inflation f- for the year, which is yeah, up over the last twelve months, which just crazy to think. And uh, right,
1: exactly. It, That's it, the good it, context that you have to remember, right?
0: Yeah, and, and the markets almost feel frothier now than they did when they started hiking, which is even scarier. <laughs>
1: I know. Exactly. So all of this like, oh, they're going to pivot. Oh, they're going to pivot. I, I I, don't think they're going to pivot. And in the 70s, they pivoted and then they hated themselves for having done it because it allowed inflation to become more entrenched. And then they had to really tighten people into a recession that they hated. So, you know, history teaches lessons that they're heeding, I think.
0: Hopefully. Yeah. So um, if we sort of look at the commodities, you know, do you think they well i guess what are the indicators that you're watching to see when maybe that move does occur when you know it it will go up and i guess is it going to be correlative or a lot of the commodities going to go up in sync what's your opinion on that
1: yeah that's a very good question so i think um i mean you start in you start in the macro picture and sort of an understanding like it does start in that growth question and so as soon as as soon as the talk of a pending recession sort of eases off and there's any concept that growth is the next opportunity. I mean, that's the time to move in, I think. Um, as for how it will play out, I mean, it, it's it's pretty tough to know. I do think that um, uranium is particularly well positioned to move up early, um, because there's just a whole bunch of forces at play that are unique to the uranium market. Um, One of them is all of the political involvement in uranium right now, this U.S., significant U.S. encouragement of domestic uranium, and the sort of, it's a bifurcation of the market where the market's becoming Western versus sort of like Russia-affiliated, Russia-China-affiliated, and that's creating its own requirements and pricings. Um, And so that's both making utilities put a little bit of pause on and be like, okay, wait, we don't want to like sign contracts for the wrong kind of uranium. But once these things become a little bit better established, there will be a bit of a rush to, um, to get in there. And then uranium has also had over the last year enough changes in the market. There's been enough like the funds that are sopping up the physical uranium and just putting it to the side, cleaning up the space. Um, I think it is just particularly well positioned to move. I think the forces are sort of lined up. So I do think that uranium has the opportunity to move early. Um, So that might be one to watch. Interestingly, I mean, when you look at metals and how they respond after uh, recessions or crashes, whatever, however you want to call it, um, gold usually rises first. I mean, that certainly happened in the COVID crash. That certainly happened in the Great Financial Crisis. Gold was the first of the metals to to rise out. I, I don't know if that's going to be the case this time, and that all goes back to everything that I just said about it. Sort of depends on how investors feel about speculative investing and opportunity in the market as a whole coming out the other side. So I I think, and and given how well copper performed before this. Hiccup, that's a bit of a gentle word to use. But anyways, Um, I kind of think that the interest might come back to copper fairly early as well. I think the need for copper in the greening of the world is becoming pretty well understood. So I actually think that uranium and copper might sort of have the opportunity to move first. Um, And yeah, and I mean, we'll see the other things like the strength of the dollar will matter, in terms of how quickly they can rise and, and concepts of inflation. And, you know, you, you mentioned before how important Chinese growth has been to metals demand. And so what does, what do Chinese stimulus programs, like infrastructure programs and whatnot, how do they play in? There's a lot of questions yet to be answered, but those are the two that I think are best positioned to move early. Um, but I don't think either will really start to go until the word, the word growth comes back into the, um, economic discourse.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. And, you know, copper has had a bit, a little bit of a bounce, I think over the past few months. So do you think maybe that could roll over or be sort of a a fake bounce just in the short term? And then we see what happens from there. Is that your sort of opinion or
1: Again, so I want copper to just go up from here because I have a longer term horizon and I understand, you know, what what the world needs and and therefore what we need the copper price to be, because it takes a long time to build mines and like three years is not very long. And so I need the copper price to be good now so that mines start getting built now. But uh, copper is a very in the moment market. And so I do think that copper is going to come back down again to some extent as we get into this recession. Now, there's a lot of balancing factors here, you know, there's a lot of economies at play that are going to contract at different rates and times. And so may maybe they will balance each other out to some extent. I don't know. um, but i I'm I haven't been buying metals or mining stocks for the last few months, because I expected a big contraction. Now, did I miss the summer rally? Sure, I missed it, um, because I didn't expect it to be as dramatic as it was. Um, But I do expect some downside ahead. And after that downside, I don't know how deep or long it will be. But over the next sort of three months, I'm once again interested in finding good stories, because I do think that this is to use an overused term, the buying opportunity, I think, it is, it is coming. I don't think it's here quite yet, but I think it's coming because then I think after this next downturn, then um, the up about the other side could be, uh, could be pretty exciting.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. So I guess, how have you positioned your portfolio to take advantage of when that does occur? What's your strategy?
1: <laughs> so uh, I wish it were more perfect, but... <laughs>
0: We all- <laughs> as,
1: as the reality of rate hikes became apparent, I certainly exited some of our, some of my positions because even stocks that I love, I knew that they were going to slide. So I exited some of those positions and have been more in cash and have been sitting. And like I say, I missed the summer rally and that's, that was me, you know, gold bounced from the high 1600s to 1800 and therefore, you know, companies leveraged that to some extent, um, now, they didn't leverage it dramatically and that the fact that miners have lagged the gold price is another piece of evidence in my eyes that this is not a real run right now. This is a, a bear market rally. Um, and so I'm still out. I, like I say, I have not bought a stock in mm. a couple months because I just haven't been interested. But I am now. Maybe it's partly because I came, I was away in July on vacation and I came back and I was like, okay, it's time to re-engage. But now I'm like, okay, I need to get out there and start looking because if I expect the markets to bottom in the next three to six months, I can't start looking for what I want to buy in the like three to six months from now. I need to have an idea. I need to already be into it. I need to be ready over the next three months. So I am, I'm, you know, I'm going back to going to conferences and taking meetings and trying to find the stocks that appeal to me so that, I don't know, in October, that's sort of a likely time, October, November, which also remember after thin summer trading, which is probably contributed to the stock market rally, summer trading volumes are thin, people go on vacation. And then classically in September, You know, Lots of traders and investors come back to their desk and take a hard look at the reality. And then the market often responds in a more data-driven fashion in the fall because they're like, wait a sec, what was going on this summer? Everybody was doing what now? And so I think that could also encourage a bit of a slide through the fall when people are like, oh, yes, right, another 75 basis point hike and inflation is still above 8%. And oh my goodness. So I do think that there will be a downside in the fall. But November, especially for mining stocks, is like a classic low point. People do tax loss selling and whatnot. So I think that, you know, buying in November is probably going to be a pretty sweet thing to do. And that's only a few months from now. So I'm looking, I'm interested. And you never try and pick the absolute bottom. I mean, you can try, but that's a good way to disappoint yourself. So you try and average in, you try and identify opportunities um, and then uh, and be be generally um, in the right ballpark.
0: Yeah, it's super interesting. I guess do you mainly get your exposure through stocks to, to these um, assets, or sort of do you use any other mechanisms? Or
1: I'm I, I own stocks. I mean but the I focus primarily on the juniors in the metals and mining space. So those who are searching to make new discoveries or turn new discoveries into mines. So the smaller companies in the space. That's my um area of expertise um that's what i love because you know it's it's sciencey it brings together lots of different things so that's what i love at the same time um i do also um own when it makes sense larger miners or even funds of miners when i think that there's a sector movement coming so you know in this sort of november buying concept you know a copper miner's ETF probably makes a heck of a lot of sense. I don't need to choose a particular copper miner. Why don't I just buy a fund of them? Because I expect the copper price to really do well. Similarly, like, you know, the Sprott uranium miner's ETF. That probably makes a lot of sense as something to own. And, and over the next few months, I'd like to enter over the next few months. So I am a stocks person. I don't really play it any other way. Um, but I'm I'm willing to go from tiny juniors all the way up to funds of, of minors, um, when the conditions merit.
0: Yeah. And I think you mentioned before that, you know, you look for that good story. So I guess what are the things that like, say if it's a junior or if it's another company, what are the things that you're really looking at and that may will pique your attention and then you'll do further research?
1: Yeah. So, um, I think there's sort of two ways to answer that. So if like right now conditions are Crap, <laughs> and so like I said, I haven't been buying anything. But I missed a really great story. There was a there was a gold explorer that's working up in Yukon. I'd met with them in the spring. I knew that their story was good. I knew their people was good, were good. Their data was good. I was really interested in the targets they were testing. And guess what? Their stock went from sixty cents to two bucks. Like while I wasn't owning it over the last two months, and the only reason that I didn't buy it was because the macro setup dissuaded me, turned me against it. And that, to me, was a reminder that true discoveries get rewarded no matter what the market is. And that's um, great to know, but it also, the the grain of salt that one needs to take with that is that it's very hard to pinpoint the the, the ones that will make the great discovery. Right. And so, yes, obviously, we, I wish that I had owned this Snowline Gold, but also it's tough to know which of the companies that you're interested in. And that's tough even for me. And I know geology. I know jurisdictions like I, I know this sector inside and out. So I have a much better chance than an average investor of identifying those ones. And even I, you know, it's it's hard even for me. So there, so there's that. Like I, I do watch out for the stories I, I do. I should. A reminder, I should have over the last few months. Watch out for the stories that look like they really have it all, right? They have just the data and the lack of previous exploration and and the approach and the money and the people and the jurisdiction and the access, all of the things that are needed and the share structure that are needed for a story to work. So those things matter always. When the macro setup is terrible, um, then you need the best of the best of the best only because they're the only ones that stand a chance when the macro setup is supportive, then you can spread your bets across more companies because there's just more companies doing things. And there's more companies with money that are drilling and exploring. So to be blunt, the number of discoveries goes up when the macro situation is supportive because there's more activity and then there's more chances of success. So there's the classic, I certainly pay attention to sort of the classic, list of requirements the project has to make sense they have to have the right theory they have to be approaching it with sound plans and backup plans the people have to you know have the appropriate expertise and capital markets connections and the share structure has to work and they have to understand how to manage capital markets and they have to be in a jurisdiction that the that the investors will support i absolutely require all of those things but then uh, the number the bar just goes up and down depending on how uh, good or not good the markets are.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So, yeah, you're very picky when it's uh, maybe a, a rough macro environment.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, perfect. And I guess are there any red flags where if you see something that a company's doing, it might sort of turn you away or even just make you yeah, be careful?
1: Absolutely. Um, this won't be a comprehensive list, but yeah. I would say that I look at a company's history of financings and I try to understand from that history whether management understands how to navigate the capital markets. So junior explorers, it's a tough, tough game. You require, you rely on investors giving you money so that you can go and test geologic theories. Like it's a tough gig. Um, and... Making that tougher are these crazy ebbs and flows in whether investors are interested in copper or gold at all um, or not. And so it's one thing to be a great geologist and to identify prospective rocks and and to, you know, understand the process, to get ownership of those rocks and and navigate the social license and all of that. That stuff's all very important. But you also have to have your head above water and be understanding what's going on in the capital markets, what's going on in macroeconomics so that you can make appropriate decisions about when and how to raise money. Because if you make bad decisions, you will dilute your shareholders. You will bring in bad shareholders who will just ditch your stock as soon as they have the opportunity. There's a lot of things that can prevent a company from succeeding on the capital market side of things, and that's primarily financing um, financing's poorly done. So with non-sticky investors at bad share prices, with warrant structures that are um, challenging for success. So looking at the capital markets history of a company um, is is a big part of how I understand. That, yeah, is a big part of, of of a red flag. And then the other thing is when it comes to their project. Or projects, I need there to be like plan A and plan B, and then maybe plan C as well, because this is science. You don't know what the results are going to be. And so any overconfidence that this is going to work is a red flag to me because you just don't know. And then at the end of the day, you are using investors' money to run a science experiment. And so I need you to be very aware of that fact and to describe all of the ways that you fit the shot, the best shots that you have on goal to turn that investment into a success. And if the first shot doesn't work, what's your next shot? And what's your next shot? And what's the time frame for that? And what are the costs for that? Like, I need you to have a really clear plan for how you're going to create value.
0: Yeah. I think that's vital, as you said, because sometimes you get the bravado, uh, you know, <laughs> CEO or the management who, you know, they promise the world and then they deliver, <laughs> deliver nothing. Absolutely, I guess you've experienced that a lot all
1: the time. <laughs>
0: yes, yeah, so that's a challenge. So, Gwen, thank you so much. We've covered so many different topics, so many different commodities. So, I really appreciate uh, your, your time. And I guess, sort of, my last question is what is one message that you'd like people to take away just remains with you?
1: The despite, um, even though commodities haven't been a particularly exciting or forward space in the market over the last years because we've had this crazy bull market in all kinds of other things that i really think that the greening of the world and the shortage of metals that we have over the next five years is going to put commodities back as a pretty exciting investment arena so it's i think it's pretty low risk i think it's um Pretty, it supports the green movement. I I think that there's a lot of opportunity for investors who have a medium term time horizon to to consider commodities, the green commodities, because I think the opportunity is very real.
0: Yeah, I agree as well. It's going to be a very interesting time in uh, the world of commodities in the next few years. So, Gwen, thanks again. You know, we mentioned that you're, uh, I think, the founder of uh, Resource Maven. So, I'm not sure if you want to mention that and maybe where else people can find some of your work.
1: For sure. So, resourcemaven.ca is my website. Um, I publish a weekly newsletter about what I'm thinking about macroeconomics and and the metal space, and then what I'm buying and selling. So I track my own portfolio through that newsletter. I don't take money from companies for coverage, so it's just about what, I, what I'm what i seeing and thinking. Um, and so there's a, that's a subscriber-supported newsletter. And then um, I'm launching a new newsletter fairly soon that's going to be called Evergreen Investing that really is focused on this green the com- the commodities, the inputs, the technologies of the green revolution. Um, and it's going to be focused on a low risk approach to just positioning for that. Um, so that'll be available at evergreeninvestor.ca pretty soon.
0: Awesome. Any dates on that? Oh no, not sure yet.
1: <laughs> no, I, the website is like getting there. So okay. I don't want to... I don't want to jinx it, but it should be pretty soon. We should be able to get up there pretty soon.
0: All right, perfect. Everyone should keep uh, refreshing the page and see what <laughs> it's like. Fingers crossed. Yeah. yeah, Gwen, thanks again for your time.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released. I hope you're leaving with some great value about investing, trading, and finance. See you on the next show.